Chapter 2, Part 3 of The Stones of Venice, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Malone. The Stones of Venice, Volume 3, by John Ruskin. The Roman Renaissance, Part 3. There were, of course, noble exceptions, but chiefly belonging to the earliest periods of the Renaissance, when its teaching had not yet produced its full effect. Raphael, Leonardo, and Michelangelo were all trained in the old school. They all had masters who knew the true ends of art, and had reached them, masters nearly as great as they were themselves, but imbued with the old religious and earnest spirit which their disciples receiving from them, and drinking at the same time deeply from all the fountains of knowledge opened in their day, became the world's wonders. Then the dull, wondering world believed that their greatness rose out of their new knowledge, instead of out of that ancient religious root in which to abide was life, from which to be severed was annihilation. And from that day to this they have tried to produce Michelangelo's and Leonardo's by teaching the barren sciences, and still have mourned and marveled that no more Michelangelo's came, not perceiving that those great fathers were only able to receive such nourishment because they were rooted on the rock of all ages, and that our scientific teaching nowadays is nothing more nor less than the assiduous watering of trees whose stems are cut through. Nay, I have even granted too much in saying that those great men were able to receive pure nourishment from the sciences. For my own conviction is, and I know it to be shared by most of those who love Raphael truly, that he painted best when he knew the least. Michelangelo was betrayed again and again into such vain and offensive exhibition of his anatomical knowledge as to this day renders his higher powers indiscernible by the greater part of men, and Leonardo fretted his life away in engineering, so that there is hardly a picture left to bear his name. But, with respect to all who followed, there can be no question that the science they possessed was utterly harmful serving merely to draw away their hearts at once from the purpose of art and the power of nature, and to make out of the canvas and marble nothing more than materials for the exhibition of petty dexterity and useless knowledge. It is sometimes amusing to watch the naive and childish way in which this vanity is shown. For instance, when perspective was first invented, the world thought it a mighty discovery, and the greatest men it had in it were as proud of knowing that retiring lines converge as if all the wisdom of Solomon had been compressed into a vanishing point. 
and accordingly it became nearly impossible for any one to paint a nativity, but he must turn the stable and manger into a Corinthian arcade in order to show his knowledge of perspective, and half the best architecture of the time, instead of being adorned with historical sculpture, as of old, was set forth with bas-relief of minor corridors and galleries thrown into perspective. Now that perspective can be taught to any schoolboy in a week, we can smile at this vanity. But the fact is that all pride in knowledge is precisely as ridiculous, whatever its kind or whatever its degree. There is indeed nothing of which a man has any right to be proud, but the very last thing of which, with any show of reason, he can make his boast is his knowledge except only that infinitely small portion of it which he has discovered for himself. For what is there to be more proud of in receiving a piece of knowledge from another person than in receiving a piece of money? Beggars should not be proud, whatever kind of alms they receive. Knowledge is like current coin. A man may have some right to be proud of possessing it if he has worked for the gold of it and assayed it, and stamped it, so that it may be received of all men as true, or earned it fairly, being already assayed. But if he has done none of these things, but only had it thrown in his face by a passer-by, what cause has he to be proud? And though in this mendicant fashion he had heaped together the wealth of Croesus, would pride any more for this become him, as in some sort it becomes the man who has labored for his fortune, however small? So, if a man tells me the sum is larger than the earth, have I any cause for pride in knowing it? Or if any multitude of men tell me any number of things, heaping all their wealth of knowledge upon me, have I any reason to be proud under the heap? And is not nearly all the knowledge of which we boast in these days cast upon us in this dishonorable way, worked for by other men, proved by them, and then forced upon us even against our wills, and beaten into us in our youth, before we have the wit even to know if it be good or not? Mark the distinction between knowledge and thought. Truly, a noble possession to be proud of. Be assured there is no part of the furniture of a man's mind which he has a right to exult in, but that which he has hewn and fashioned for himself. He who has built himself a hut on a desert heath and carved his bed and table and chair out of the nearest forest may have some right to take pride in the appliances of his narrow chamber, as assuredly he will have joy in them. But the man who has had a palace built and adorned and furnished for him may indeed have many advantages above the other, but he has no reason to be proud of his upholsterer's skill, and it is ten to one if he has half the joy in his couches of ivory that the other will have in his pallet of pine. And observe how we feel this, 
in the kind of respect we pay to such knowledge as we are indeed capable of estimating the value of. When it is our own and new to us, we cannot judge of it. But let it be another's also, and long familiar to us, and see what value we set on it. Consider how we regard a schoolboy fresh from his term's labor. If he begin to display his newly acquired small knowledge to us, and plume himself thereupon, how soon do we silence him with contempt? But it is not so if the schoolboy begins to feel or see anything. In the stirrings of his soul within him he is our equal. In his power of sight and thought he stands separate from us, and may be a greater than we. We are ready to fear him forthwith. You saw that, you felt that. No matter for your being a child, let us hear. Consider that every generation of men stands in this relation to its successors. It is as a schoolboy. The knowledge of which it is proudest will be as the alphabet to those who follow. It had better make no noise about its knowledge. A time will come when its utmost in that kind will be food for scorn. Poor fools, was that all they knew? And behold how proud they were. But what we see and feel will never be mocked at. All men will be thankful to us for telling them that. Indeed, they will say, they felt that in their own day, saw that. Would God we may be like them before we go to the home where sight and thought are not. This unhappy and childish pride in knowledge, then, was the first constituent element of the Renaissance mind, and it was enough of itself to have cast it into swift decline. But it was aided by another form of pride, which was above called the pride of state, and which we have next to examine. 2. Pride of State it was noted in the second volume of Modern Painters, page 122, that the principle which had most power in retarding the modern school of portraiture was its constant expression of individual vanity and pride. And the reader cannot fail to have observed that one of the readiest and commonest ways in which the painter ministers to this vanity is by introducing the pedestal or shaft of a column or some fragment, however simple, of Renaissance architecture in the background of the portrait. And this is not merely because such architecture is bolder or grander than, in general, that of the apartments of a private house. No other architecture would produce the same effect in the same degree. The richest Gothic, the most massive Norman, would not produce the same sense of exaltation as the simple and meager lines of the Renaissance. And if we think over this matter a little, we shall soon feel that in those meager lines there is indeed an expression of aristocracy in its worst characters. Coldness, perfectness of training, 
incapability of emotion, want of sympathy with the weakness of lower men, blank, hopeless, haughty self-sufficiency. All these characters are written in the Renaissance architecture as plainly as if they were graven on it in words. For observe, all other architectures have something in them that common men can enjoy, some concession to the simplicities of humanity, some daily bread for the hunger of the multitude, quaint fancy, rich ornament, bright color, something that shows a sympathy with men of ordinary minds and hearts, and this wrought out, at least in the Gothic, with a rudeness showing that the workman did not mind exposing his own ignorance if he could please others. But the Renaissance is exactly the contrary of all this. It is rigid, cold, inhuman, incapable of glowing, of stooping, of conceding for an instant. Whatever excellence it has is refined, high-trained, indubitably erudite. A kind which the architect well knows no common mind can taste. He proclaims it to us aloud. You cannot feel my work unless you study Vitruvius. I will give you no gay color, no pleasant sculpture, nothing to make you happy, for I am a learned man. All the pleasure you can have in anything I do is in its proud breeding, its rigid formalism, its perfect finish, its cold tranquillity. I do not work for the vulgar, only for the men of the academy and the court. And the instinct of the world felt this in a moment. In the new precision and accurate law of the classical forms, they perceived something peculiarly adapted to the setting forth of state in an appalling manner. Princes delighted in it, and courtiers. The Gothic was good for God's worship, but this was good for man's worship. The Gothic had fellowship with all hearts, and was universal like nature. It could frame a temple for the prayer of nations, or shrink into the poor man's winding stair. But here was an architecture that would not shrink, that had in it no submission, no mercy. The proud princes and lords rejoiced in it. It would not be built to the materials at the poor man's hand. It would not root itself with thatch or shingle and black oak beams. It would not wall itself with rough stone or brick. It would not pierce itself with small windows where they were needed. It would not niche itself wherever there was room for it in the street corners. It would be of hewn stone, it would have its windows and its doors, and its stairs and its pillars, in lordly order, and of stately saws. It would have its wings and its corridors and its halls and its gardens, as if all the earth were its own. And the rugged cottages of the mountaineers and the fantastic streets of the laboring burgher were to be thrust out of its way as of a lower species. It is to be noted also that it ministered as much to luxury as to pride, not to luxury of the eye, that is a holy luxury, 
Nature ministers to that in her painted meadows and sculptured forests and gilded heavens. The Gothic builder ministered to that in his twisted traceries and deep-wrought foliage and burning casements. The dead Renaissance drew back into its earthliness, out of all that was warm and heavenly, back into its pride, out of all that was simple and kind, back into its stateliness, out of all that was impulsive, reverent, and gay. But it understood the luxury of the body, the terraced and scented and grottoed garden with its trickling fountains and slumberous shades. The spacious hall and lengthened corridor for the summer heat, the well-closed windows and perfect fittings of furniture for defense against the cold, and the soft picture and frescoed wall and roof covered with the last lasciviousness of paganism. This is understood and possessed to the full, and still possesses. This is the kind of domestic architecture on which we pride ourselves even to this day, as an infinite and honorable advance from the rough habits of our ancestors, from the time when the king's floor was strewn with rushes and the tapestries swayed before the searching wind in the baron's hall. Let us hear two stories of those rougher times. At the debate of King Edwin and his courtiers and priests, whether he ought to receive the gospel preached to him by Paulinus, one of his nobles spoke as follows. The present life, O king, weighed with the time that is unknown, seems to me like this. When you are sitting at a feast with your earls and thanes in wintertime, and the fire is lighted, and the hall is warmed, and it rains and snows, and the storm is loud without, there comes a sparrow, and flies through the house. It comes in at one door, and goes out at the other. While it is within, it is not touched by the winter storm, but it is but for the twinkling of an eye, for from winter it comes, and to winter it returns. So also this life of man endureth for a little space. What goes before, or what follows after, we know not. Wherefore, if this new lore bring anything more certain, it is fit that we should follow it. That could not have happened in a Renaissance building. The bird could not have dashed in from the cold into the heat, and from the heat back again into the storm. It would have had to come up a flight of marble stairs, and through seven or eight antechambers, and so, if it had ever made its way into the presence chamber, out again through lodges and corridors innumerable. And the truth which the bird brought with it, fresh from heaven, has, in like manner, to make its way to the Renaissance mind through many antechambers, hardly, and as a despised thing, if at all. Hear another story of those early times. The king of Jerusalem, Godfrey of Bouillon, at the siege of Ashur, or Arsur, gave audience to some emirs from Samaria and Naplus. They found him seated on the ground on a sack of straw. They expressing surprise, Godfrey answered them, May not the earth, 
out of which we came, and which is to be our dwelling after death, serve us for a seat during life. It is long since such a throne has been set in the reception chambers of Christendom, or such an answer heard from the lips of a king. Thus the Renaissance spirit became base both in its abstinence and its indulgence, base in its abstinence, curtailing the bright and playful wealth of form and thought which filled the architecture of the earlier ages with sources of delight for their hardy spirit, pure, simple, yet rich as the fretwork of flowers and moss, watered by some strong and stainless mountain stream, and base in its indulgence, as it granted to the body what it withdrew from the heart, and exhausted in smoothing the pavement for the painless feet, and softening the pillow for the sluggish brain, the powers of art which once had hewn rough ladders into the clouds of heaven, and set up stones by which they rested for houses of God. And just in proportion, as this courtly sensuality lowered the real nobleness of the men whom birth or fortune raised above their fellows, rose their estimate of their own dignity, together with the insolence and unkindness of its expression and the grossness of the flattery with which it was fed. Pride is indeed the first and the last among the sins of men, and there is no age of the world in which it has not been unveiled in the power and prosperity of the wicked. But there was never in any form of slavery or of feudal supremacy a forgetfulness so total of the common majesty of the human soul and of the brotherly kindness due from man to man, as in the aristocratic follies in the Renaissance. I have not space to follow out this most interesting and extensive subject, but here is a single and very curious example of the kind of flattery with which architectural teaching was mingled when addressed to the men of rank of the day. In St. Mark's Library there is a very curious Latin manuscript of the twenty-five books of Averhulinus, a Florentine architect, upon the principles of his art. The book was written in or about 1460, and translated into Latin, and richly illuminated for Corvinus, king of Hungary, about 1483. I extract from the third book the following passage on the nature of stones. As there are three genera of men, that is to say nobles, men of the middle classes and rustics, so it appears that there are of stones. For the marbles and common stones of which we have spoken above set forth the rustics the porphyries and alabasters and the other harder stones of mingled quality represent the middle classes, if we are to deal in comparisons, and by means of these the ancients adorned their temples with incrustations and ornaments in a magnificent manner. And after these come the chalcedonies and sardonyxes, and so on, which are so transparent that there can be seen no spot in them. Thus men endowed with nobility 
lead a life in which no spot can be found. Canute, or Coeur de Lyon, I name not Godfrey or Saint Louis, would have dashed their scepters against the lips of a man who should have dared to utter to them flattery such as this. But in the fifteenth century it was rendered and accepted as a matter of course, and the tempers which delighted in it necessarily took pleasure also in every vulgar or false means of taking worldly superiority. And among such false means, largeness of scale in the dwelling-house was, of course, one of the easiest and most direct. All persons, however senseless or dull, could appreciate size. It required some exertion of intelligence to enter into the spirit of the quaint carving of the Gothic times, but none to perceive that one heap of stones was higher than another, and therefore, while in the execution and manner of work the Renaissance builders zealously vindicated for themselves the attribute of cold and superior learning, they appealed for such approbation as they needed from the multitude to the lowest possible standard of taste. And while the older workman lavished his labor on the minute niche and narrow casement, on the doorways no higher than the head, and the contracted angles of the turreted chamber, the Renaissance builder spared such cost and toil in his detail that he might spend it in bringing larger stones from a distance, and restricted himself to rustication and five orders, that he might load the ground with colossal piers and raise an ambitious barrenness of architecture as inanimate as it was gigantic above the feasts and follies of the powerful or the rich. The titanic insanity extended itself also into ecclesiastical design. The principal church in Italy was built with little idea of any other admirableness than that which was to result from its being huge, and the religious impressions of those who enter it are to this day supposed to be dependent, in a great degree, on their discovering that they cannot span the thumbs of the statues which sustain the vessels for holy water. It is easy to understand how an architecture which thus appealed not less to the lowest instincts of dullness than to the subtlest pride of learning rapidly found acceptance with a large body of mankind, and how the spacious pomp of the new manner of design came to be eagerly adopted by the luxurious aristocracies, not only of Venice, but of the other countries of Christendom, now gradually gathering themselves into that insolent and festering isolation against which the cry of the poor sounded hourly in more ominous unison, bursting at last into thunder, Marquere, first among the planted walks and plashing fountains of the palace, wherein the Renaissance luxury attained its utmost height in Europe, Versailles. That cry, mingling so much piteousness with its wrath and indignation, our soul is filled with the scornful reproof of the wealthy and with the despitefulness of the proud.
But of all the evidence bearing upon this subject presented by the various arts of the 15th century, none is so interesting or so conclusive as that deduced from its tombs. For exactly in proportion as the pride of life became more insolent, the fear of death became more servile. And the difference in the manner in which the men of early and later days adorned the sepulchre confesses a still greater difference in their manner of regarding death. To those he came as the comforter and the friend, rest in his right hand, hope in his left. To these as the humiliator, the spoiler, and the avenger, and therefore we find the early tombs at once simple and lovely in adornment, severe and solemn in their expression, confessing the power and accepting the peace of death, openly and joyfully, and in all their symbols marking that the hope of resurrection lay only in Christ's righteousness, signed always with this simple utterance of the dead, I will lay me down in peace and take my rest, for it is thou, Lord, only that makest me dwell in safety. But the tombs of the later ages are a ghastly struggle of mean pride and miserable terror, the one mustering the statues of the virtues about the tomb, disguising the sarcophagus with delicate sculpture, polishing the false periods of the elaborate epitaph, and filling with strained animation the features of the portrait statue and the other summoning underneath out of the niche or from behind the curtain the frowning skull or the scythe skeleton or some other more terrible image of the enemy in whose defiance the whiteness of the sepulchre had been set to shine above the whiteness of the ashes. This change in the feeling with which sepulchral monuments were designed from the 11th to the 18th centuries has been common to the whole of Europe. But as Venice is in other respects the center of the Renaissance system, so also she exhibits this change in the manner of the sepulchral monument under circumstances peculiarly calculated to teach us its true character. For the severe guard which in earlier times she put upon every tendency to personal pomp and ambition renders the tombs of her ancient monarchs as remarkable for modesty and simplicity as for their religious feeling, so that in this respect they are separated by a considerable interval from the more costly monuments erected at the same periods to the kings or nobles of other European states. In later times, on the other hand, as the piety of the Venetians diminished, their pride overleaped all limits, and the tombs which in recent epochs were erected for men who had lived only to impoverish or disgrace the state, were as much more magnificent than those contemporaneously erected for the nobles of Europe as the monuments for the great Doge had been humbler. When, in addition to this, we reflect that the art of sculpture, considered as expressive of emotion, was at a low ebb in Venice in the twelfth century, and that in the seventeenth she took the lead in Italy in luxurious work, 
we shall at once see the chain of examples through which the change of feeling is expressed must present more remarkable extremes here than it can in any other city. Extremes so startling that their impressiveness cannot be diminished, while their intelligibility is generally increased by the large number of intermediate types which have fortunately been preserved. It would, however, too much weary the general reader if, without illustrations, I were to endeavor to lead him step by step through the aisles of St. John and St. Paul, and I shall therefore confine myself to a slight notice of those features in sepulchral architecture generally which are especially illustrative of the matter at present in hand, and point out the order in which, if possible, the traveler should visit the tombs in Venice, so as to be most deeply impressed with the true character of the lessons they convey. End of chapter 2, part 3 Reading by Malone